Because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, we're going to look at verses 67 to 79. Luke 1, 67 to 79. If you don't have a Bible, that's okay. There's a Bible in the chair in front of you. It's a black hardcover. Looks like this. Go ahead and grab this. And if you turn to page 908, page 908 to 909 here in the Pew Bible, you'll find our text for this morning. And if you have a different translation and you want to follow along in the translation we're using, then again, this would be a good um, thing to, just to pick up right there. So um, page 908. 8 to 909, Luke chapter 1, verses 67 to 79. Before I read it, let me just set the context. It's especially important that I set the context for this reading. Um, this is not Mary's song. This is Zechariah's song. So Zechariah, he, he was married to Elizabeth. Elizabeth is the cousin of Mary. So this is Mary, and Mary is engaged to Joseph right here in Luke 1. So um, Elizabeth and Zechariah are a Levitical family. Um, Zechariah is a priest, and they're older, and they weren't able to have kids. They didn't have any kids. She wasn't able to have kids. And so as, an, up in, as they're older now, Zechariah gets a vision from an angel that they're going to have kids. They're going to have one kid, and he's going to prepare the way for the Messiah because God's about to come. Zechariah doesn't believe it. He hears it. He's a little skeptical about it. I mean, how often do you see an angel when you go to work? Well, you don't see that often. He didn't see that often either. Angels weren't, you know, just every day, just, you know, wake up and there's an angel outside your door or when you're brushing your teeth. That's not normal. So he sees an angel and the angel tells him this and he doesn't believe. He kind of doubts. And so the angel says, you're not going to be able to speak until this child is born because you doubted. So um, they get pregnant. She goes through the nine months of labor. She has a baby and the baby's, and they're debating the baby's name and the father hasn't been able to speak for at least these nine months. And so um, they want to name him after some family member, which is the tradition. And then the mom says, no, we're going to name him John. And they're, John? Who's John? Like, there's no John in our family. There's a lot of John in this BBC family. There's not a lot of Johns in that family. And so, um, what? We can't name him John. And what does the dad say? So Zechariah, Zechariah writes on, he writes down that his name will be John. And then his tongue is unloosed and his mouth is now open and he's now able to speak. Imagine not being able to speak for 10 months. Some of you say, I wish there were some people who couldn't speak for 10 months, but no. Um, so imagine if you couldn't, what would you say? So these are his first words as his mouth is unloosed and this is what he says. Look at Luke 1. Now let's get to the text. Luke 1, 67 to 79. Then his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, Blessed is the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has visited and provided redemption for his people. He has raised up a horn for, of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, just as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets in ancient times. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of those who hate us. He has dealt mercifully with our fathers and remembered his holy covenant the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. He has given us the privilege since we have been rescued from the hand of our enemies to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness in his presence all our days. And you, child, will be called a prophet of the Most High 
For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give his people knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of sins, of their sins. Because of our God's merciful compassion, the dawn from on high will visit us to shine on those who live in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. This is the word of the Lord. May the word of Christ dwell richly among us. Father, we pray that you would fill us with your spirit the way you filled Zechariah with your spirit. We pray that you would open our minds to understand your truth the way you opened Luke, who wrote this book, the way you opened his mind to understand the truth. We pray that you would open our hearts to receive Christ, to trust in Christ, to turn from our sins, to hope in Christ. Fill us with your joy, for your joy is our strength. Fill us with your hope, because your hope is steady and sure. Fill us with your love, because as we focus on the coming of Christ, there is no greater display of your love than Jesus Christ himself. So magnify your son in our hearts and in our minds. We pray this, Lord. We need your help. Strengthen us. Apart from you, we can't do anything. So help us. Change us and shift our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If you knew the world was going to end soon in this generation, in the next few years, in this decade, if you knew the world was going to end, what would you do? How would you feel? What would you feel? What would you think if you just got a word from an angel and you knew for sure that it was God and you, it wasn't Satan disguising himself as an angel of light, but you knew that the world was going to end soon, what would you think? If you're not a Christian, I wonder what you would think if you knew that the world was going to end in a few years. Maybe you try to get as much pleasure as you can or power or personal interaction. Get as much of it as possible. I think I would, defined in a Christian way. Maybe you'd freak out and go into despair. Or maybe you'd just shrug your shoulders and say, oh, what else is new? And go back to looking at your phone and scrolling through the next article or ping a notification that comes up on your phone and just continue your normal pattern of living to the end. If you're a Christian, I wonder what you would do if you knew that the Lord Jesus, this is what we believe about the end, that the Lord Jesus is coming again, and you knew he'd come in the next few years. We know, we know, no one knows the day or the hour, but what if we just knew the decade that is going to be in this next decade, that the, that the Lord Jesus would come? What would you think? What would you feel? What would you do? Jesus coming to reign, to save his people from their sins, to conquer his enemies and give us new resurrection bodies. If you knew that was coming in the next 10 years, what would you feel? Would you feel regret about what you haven't done? Fear, perhaps? Maybe a sense of urgency? Or maybe just joy and excitement, sheer joy and excitement. I hope I can last for the next 10 years to be here for it. There can be a plethora of answers of of how you might respond if you knew this was going to happen. Luke gives us a good guide um, through Zechariah's response because Zechariah did expect this. You need to know when you read the Old Testament and even these early 
songs like this one, they didn't expect two comings of the Messiah. They expected the Messiah to come and end the whole thing. So what I'm saying in terms of what you'd imagine is what Zechariah was feeling. As he gets this word that the end is coming, the Messiah is coming, he's thinking, great. Isaiah 65 says a new creation, a new heavens and a new earth. It's coming now, no more tears. So Zechariah is excited, ecstatic, because he gets word that the end is near. And it was. And it is. So how would you respond? Let's look at Zechariah's response here. So here's the main goal. I'm going to give a question. I'll pose it in a question, then the answer. The main, the main question is, how would you respond at the prospect of God coming to save? If you knew that God was coming to save, how would you respond? That's the main question. And here's the answer I think we get from this text. You should respond in two ways. Praise God and purpose your life. Praise God for his saving work and purpose your life by pointing to his light. Don't worry about that now. I'll get to it again. But praise God and purpose your life. That's what you should do if you knew God was soon going to save. That's what Zechariah teaches us here. So look again. Verse 67. Then his father was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. Just a note on filling with the Holy Spirit. Um, How do you get filled with the Holy Spirit? What are the three steps to get filled with the Holy Spirit? There are not three steps to get filled with the Holy Spirit. You cannot command the Holy Spirit. He's not like your pet. You can say, sit to your dog, and your dog sits. Um, That's not the Holy Spirit. He's not an it. He's a he, and he's God. And he'll fill you when he wants to fill you, and he'll withhold himself from you when he wants to withhold his filling from you. You can't command him at the snap of your finger. But you can do some things to get your heart prepared to fill yourself with the Holy Spirit. What do you do? You fill yourself with God's word. You trust in God's word. You turn from all your sins that you know to turn from. And you pray that God's spirit would fill you. And if you start praying that and trusting God and turning from your sins and stuffing your mind and thoughts with God's word that you can trust, guess who's already working in you to do that? The Holy Spirit. So he comes before your work and in response to your work. And he's the one in control. But here, the Holy Spirit fills Zechariah. And what does he say? He praises God for actively saving us. And here he defines what he's praising God for. What is the salvation? Look at verse 68. Here's why I say praise God. He says, blessed is the Lord, the God of Israel. So there's the, there's the push. There's the action. What is Zechariah doing? He's praising God. He's blessing God. Praise God, not just any God, not just any religious God, not just any nation's God. Praise God, the God of Israel. Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who keeps his covenant, the God who redeemed Israel out of Egypt, out of slavery, the God who gave his law covenant at Sinai, the God who promised a Messiah, the God who would save his people from their sins, the God of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Praise that God. Blessed be that God, the God of Israel. Why? Now, what you get for the rest of this praise, all the way up until verse 70. Five, because in 76, he's going to address his son, his newborn. Before he addresses his newborn, he's praising God. So usually when you say praise God, what, you, what normally follows in the Psalms and in like Ephesians 1, 3 to 14, is reasons why you should praise God. So what are the reasons why you should praise God here? Because, and there's three reasons, three, three ways of defining salvation, three aspects to salvation. Because he has visited us, that's number one. I'm just giving you three aspects here. We're not going to meditate on this too long. He has visited us. He has provided redemption for his people. And he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. 
So three R's of salvation. God returns. He's returned to us. He's visited us because he left us and now he's returned. He has, it says in verse 68 again, he provided redemption. He redeems us. God returns. God returned to us. He's redeeming us. And the last R is he has raised up a horn of salvation. Okay? So here's what salvation looks like. What does it mean that God came to save his people? If you're in Zechariah's time, you think he's going to conquer all the enemies and our nation's going to be exalted. That's if you're talking to an old covenant believer. If you're talking to a new covenant believer in the church today, you say, what does it mean that God saves us? Oh, he forgives us of all of our sins and we go to heaven forever. That's the answer. See how different those answers are? God's going to save us. For him, it means our nation is going to be on top. When we say it today, oh, that means we're forgiven of our sins and we're, not, we're going to be in heaven forever. Those sound very different from each other, don't they? They're not different if you understand salvation biblically. They're very closely aligned. And these are the three aspects, these three R's. One, God will return to his people. Salvation means that God is coming back. God left in the Garden of Eden. Remember, he kicked them out of the garden. Then the flood happened, so the Garden of Eden is gone. And then God moved into the tabernacle and temple in Israel and Jerusalem. But then after they rebelled, God exiled them, kicked them out of the land, just like he kicked them out of the Garden of Eden. But before he did that, Ezekiel says, there was a vision of God's glory leaving the temple. So God left again, and God never returned. God didn't set foot on earth. And now God is visiting his people again. He's returning. So Psalm 96, 13 says something like this. Before the Lord, so about before the Lord, for he is coming. For he is coming to do what? To judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with faithfulness. He's going to bring fairness. Wouldn't it be great if there was fairness in the world? Wouldn't it be great if there was justice and we didn't have to debate what is the truly just political strategy, politician, party, country, how nations should relate to each other? Wouldn't it be great if there was just perfect justice everywhere? That'd be awesome. Well, guess what? God is coming and what is he going to do? He's coming to judge and he will judge fairly all the nations. Malachi 3.1 promised this. It says in Malachi 3.1, see, I'm going to send my messenger and he will clear the way before me. The Lord you seek will suddenly come to his temple. God left the temple in Jerusalem. He's suddenly going to come back to his temple. In Malachi 3.5, God says, I will come to you in judgment and I will, be a ready I will be ready to witness against sorcerers and adulterers, against those who swear falsely, liars. I'll be against those who oppress the hired worker, the widow, and the fatherless, that's the vulnerable, and against those who deny justice to the immigrant, the resident alien, it says. They do not fear me. They take advantage of immigrants, the orphans, the widows, those who are hired to work. They lie. They're adulterous. They do sorcery and superstition. And God says, I'm coming back to Jerusalem to judge fairly and righteously. God promised to judge. Um, before we move on to redeem now, um, I wanted to point out, I'm sorry, I forgot to do this earlier. Go to verses 70, 70 and 71. He's going to talk about this salvation, this 3R salvation. He says this 3R salvation, returning, redeeming, and raising up a horn is coming just as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets in ancient times. And what is this 3R thing? It's salvation from our enemies and from the hand of those who hate us. It's very Israel-centered. We're going to be delivered from those who hate us, and we're going to be saved from our enemies. That's Zechariah's thought. And it's these three R's. And he said, just as it was spoken in the Holy Prophets. That's why I'm quoting some Old Testament here to show you where the return is. What about redemption? 
Did God promise? It says here in verse 68 again, he provided redemption for his people. Did he say that in the Old Testament, that he's going to redeem his people? Yes or no? Yes, he did. Turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 59, if you can. If not, just listen. But if you can, turn to Isaiah 59, verses, verse 15. I'm going to read a long section here. So I want you to turn here. You need to track with the Old Testament prophecy if you're going to understand Christmas and salvation. Isaiah 59, beginning in verse 15. It's on page 656 in the Pew Bible, if you'd like to turn there. Isaiah 59, 15. I'm going to read about 11 or 12 verses here. We're going to go into chapter 60. Listen to what redemption looks like here, okay? And why redemption is needed. Redemption is God buying back his people, purchasing his people out of slavery. What are they enslaved to? Here's the situation. Verse 15. Truth is missing, and whoever turns from evil is plundered. So repentance is, is attacked. The Lord saw that there was, no, there was no justice, and he was offended. He saw that there was no man. He was amazed that there was no one interceding. So his own arm brought salvation. His own righteousness supported him. So no one's saving the people of Israel. So what does God do? He does it himself. I'll save my people. Verse 17, he put on righteousness as body armor and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and he wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak, as in a cloak. God's getting ready for war. Verse 18, what is he gonna do? So he will repay according to their deeds, fury to his enemies, retribution to his foes, and he will repay the coasts and islands. They will fear the name of Yahweh the Lord in the west and his glory in the east, for he will come like a rushing stream driven by the wind of Yahweh the Lord. Here's the word redemption. The redeemer will come to Zion, that's Jerusalem, and to those in Jacob who turn from transgression. He's gonna come to Jerusalem. He's gonna come not to everyone, but to those who turn from their sins, those who repent. This is the Lord's declaration. Verse 21, as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit who is on you and my words that I put in your mouth will not depart from your mouth or from the mouths of your children or from the mouths of your children's children from now on and forever, says the Lord. I'm gonna give my word to your, to my, your children, my people. Verse one of chapter 60. So what's the command? Arise, shine, for your light has come. We read this last Sunday in our scripture reading. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord shines over you, Israel. For look, darkness will cover the earth, and total darkness the nations, the peoples. Is this world a dark world? Yes or no? Is there darkness in this world? Among the nations? Yes. Total darkness the peoples. But the Lord will shine over you, and his glory will appear over you. Nations will come to your light. And kings to your shining brightness, raise your eyes and look around. They all gather and come to you. Your sons will come from far away and your daughters on the hips of nannies. Then you will see and be radiant and your heart will tremble and rejoice because the riches of the sea will become yours and the wealth of the nations will come to you. This is what happens. When God redeems his people and buys them back out of slavery, out of exile, out of rebellion, and they turn from their sins and they trust in Yahweh, the world that's in darkness, the nation that's in darkness, will have light. Where does God's light start? On what nation? Israel, right? 
It will shine on Israel. And when God's light shines on them and God says, arise, shine, for your light has come, and Israel rises in the light, what's going to happen to all the nations that are in darkness? They're going to what? Come to where? They're going to come to Israel. They're going to come to the light. And they're going to come to God through the nation of Israel because God, the Redeemer, will bring them out of exile. He will bring them out of darkness. He will bring them out of slavery. He will bring them out of their rebellion. God will come to redeem. He promised he would. This is 700 years before Zechariah's baby was just born, John the Baptist. And as Zechariah is filled with the Holy Spirit, he's saying, God, you promised redemption was going to come. Isaiah prophesied it. And here it is. Your redemption has come. So God who's going to return to his people, he's going to redeem his people. And thirdly, going back to Luke chapter 1, verse 69, he has raised up a horn for his people. So he returns, he redeems, and he, he what? Raises up a horn of salvation. Raises up a horn of salvation for us. What, is, what does he mean by horn? Now, if you've talked to me this week about it, don't guess, because that's cheating. Those of you who have not talked to me this week about the horn, what does he mean by God raising up a horn of salvation? What does that mean, to raise up a horn? A king. What else? An announcement? Okay, yeah, maybe you blow a horn for announcement, right? Um, that's a good guess. But yes, um, ultimately, it's a king. And we have the clue because of the next phrase. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us. From where? In the house of, what? of who? David. And who's David? David's the king. Before he was king, who did he fight? Goliath, right? And he killed Goliath. And I'll tell you that story in a second. We're actually going to go back to that story. But David was the king anointed by God. And God promised David that he would have a son to rule as the king of kings and lord of lords. Actually, our brother Ben read it for us from Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he's going to reign over the nations. In Isaiah 11, that's from the shoot of Jesse. That's from David's family. So what, why, why, is it, why, is it, why is the king called a horn, though? Because I think when we think of horn, what Reese said is, is way more plausible. A horn is something you sound out to get everyone's attention. But back then, what's a symbol of power today? I don't even know what the symbol of power would be today. Maybe a tank or a missile now or a drone might be the symbol of, of national military power today. But the symbol of power in ancient times was a horn, a ram's horn. A horn, a horn is power. And who exercised power for the nation? the king, and the kingly power. And so when God says he's raising up a horn of salvation, he's raising up a king from the house of David. Does that have anything to do with salvation, that a king from David's gonna come? Yes. So what does salvation mean in three R's? That God himself will return to his people and to the earth. Secondly, salvation means that God will redeem his people and, and redeem them from slavery and from darkness in this world above the nations. And lastly, God would raise up a what? A horn, which is what? A king, a messiah, to rule. That's salvation. God coming, God redeeming, God ruling. That's salvation. And so when Zechariah says, praise God, Israel's going to be restored, and we say, praise God, our sins are forgiven, it sounds so far apart. It's actually the same thing. God raises up a horn for salvation. Now, this promise can be summed up, and I want you to turn here. Keep your finger in Luke, one more Old Testament passage. And I'm going to the Old Testament because Zechariah told us the prophet spoke. Turn to Genesis 12. 
Who wrote Genesis? Anyone here know? Bible quiz. Who wrote Genesis? Who wrote the book of Genesis? Moses. Is Moses a prophet? Some of you hesitate. Yes, Moses is a prophet. Okay, good. Moses is a prophet, and he prophesies here in Genesis 12 by writing this book. In Genesis 12, what is Moses' prophecy? Genesis 12, verse 2. Now, this prophecy is to Abraham, and what is this prophecy? It says this. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you, Abraham, and I will make your name great. And guess what? When I make you great and I make your nation great, you will be a what? You'll be a blessing to who? Verse 3. I will bless those who bless you. So you'll be a blessing to who? To those who bless Abraham. To those who bless Abraham's great nation. I'll bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt. I will curse those who curse you. And here's the prophecy again. Here's the promise. And all the peoples of the earth, all the ethnic people groups of the earth will be blessed through you, Abraham. There's the great promise of the Bible. If Genesis 1 through 11 is the great curse of sin and total darkness in this world, the great promise of God's blessing on the cursed people is this fivefold blessing, that through Abraham and through this great nation, God will bless all the peoples of the earth. And so what is Zechariah doing as he sees his baby crying, just cut from the umbilical cord right there, and they just named him John? What is Zechariah thinking of? The prophets, the promises, this John, not the Messiah, but John who's going to come before the Messiah, this is a sign that God is finally going to fulfill all those promises for the past 20 centuries from Abraham, 2,000 years before John and before Zechariah. Let me try to illustrate God's saving work here. I told you we'd come back to the story of David and Goliath. So let's think about this for a second. Do you remember the story of David and Goliath in, in 1 Samuel 17? Israel was was in war with the Philistines and they were scared and there was a standstill between the two and Israel was outmatched and outnumbered. And so the Philistines say, we'll throw you a bone, we'll make it easier for you. You pick your best soldier. So their best soldier steps forward and his name is Goliath and he stands about nine feet tall and is muscular and strong and able to fight. And so here comes this nine foot giant comes out and says, all right, you guys pick your best, let's let's do it this way. You pick your best soldier, to fight me, if I lose, then our people will serve your people and we'll be subjugated to you. But if your champion loses, then your people will be subjugated to us. So we don't have to kill everybody. Let's just one person fight, only one person die, and then from there, we'll figure it out. So who stepped up from Israel? Nobody. Everyone was scared. So this offer came out every day. So they'd be at the front lines of battle. Every day, Goliath would come out, lay down the challenge. People would tremble in their boots. He'd come back to the next day, come back out again and do the same thing. Well, David ended up there, and when David came, because he was bringing food to his brothers, who were soldiers, he inquired what was going to happen, and he found out about the deal. So David decides to fight him. Now, where does David get the... Whoops, there goes my water. Where did David get the courage from? That's 1 Samuel 17. Anyone know what happened in 1 Samuel 16? Where did David get the courage from? God, how? A chapter earlier... Just before this, David is anointed by Samuel. Samuel comes in secret, and he anoints David with oil and declares him the future king of Israel. And what happens when the oil comes upon him? What else comes upon him? Who else comes upon him? The Holy Spirit. And from that point on, David is living in the power and courage of the Holy Spirit. So now when this challenge of Goliath comes out, it's not that David is just more courageous naturally than other people. 
He has the Holy Spirit of God living in him. That's a pretty good advantage, right? To have the Holy Spirit of God, Almighty God living in you and empowering you. So David hears the challenge and he steps out as the anointed one. What's another word for anointed one? Messiah. David steps out as the Messiah, as the anointed one in the power of the Holy Spirit. And he comes and he gets his sling. He puts, it, he puts the rock in the sling and he comes towards Goliath and he, he starts swinging his sling around and he lets the, the baseball-sized rock fly out of the sling and hits Goliath right between the eyes before they could even get to hand-to-hand combat. Goliath falls down but doesn't die. David stands over him, grabs Goliath's huge sword, and cuts his head off. Grabs it, holds it up, screams, and all the soldiers run out from the front line to go fight. And the Philistines just all lay down and say, okay, we surrender, right? No, they don't do that. They run. They didn't keep their deal. Dude, Goliath, uh, Goliath lost. David won. Keep your deal. You're subjugated now, right? No, they, they run. So what does Israel do? They chase after them and start killing them and fighting against them for the rest of the battle. And they were victorious that day. That's what salvation looks like. You're not David. You're the chicken, scared Israelites on the front line saying, we can't win. We're going to be slaves. We're going to lose. We have no chance. That's you. That's me. That's Bethany Baptist Church. That's the world. That's the nations in darkness, under sin, hopeless. We need a Messiah to come forward. We need a horn to be raised up, filled with the power of the Spirit, to conquer the enemy so that we can also do our fighting, our small little fighting. It's still something. It's just not the main fight. He does the big fight. He wins the big fight, but there's still little fighting to be done. So we need the Messiah to come and save us. And that's what God does. That's what Zechariah is celebrating here. God comes to save his people. God fights for his people. God secures the main victory. And we get to benefit and fight in light of that main victory. Now, why does God choose to save? Let's continue in uh, verses 72. There's three reasons in 72. Go back to Luke chapter 1. So you keep your finger there. God continues to say, or God saves. Now, what does this, what's the purpose of the salvation? Look at verses 72 through 75. I want to point out here three purposes for salvation. Why does God choose to actively save? Three reasons. And we're not going to dwell on them long. I'm just going to name them. I might dwell on some longer than the others. First one is in verse 72. Look at verse 72. He has dealt with us, and I would translate this, in order to deal with us, or to deal with us. So, he has brought salvation from our enemies, from, those, from, the land of, from the hand of those who hate us. Don't put a period there. He has, dealt with, he has given a salvation to us and, um, from our enemies, from the hand of those who hate us, in order to deal mercifully with our fathers. That's the first reason why he saves. Why does God actively save, and why does he not just draw back and let us die on our own? Because he did this to deal mercifully with our fathers. God loved the fathers. He loved Abraham. He loved Isaac. He loved Jacob. He loved the 12 heads of the, of the um, nation of Israel. He loved David. He loved his prophets. He loved the fathers. That's the first reason why God comes to save, because he promised them, and he's accomplishing the mercy because he cares. Care without action is just mean. To say you care without actively caring is just mean, right? So God is not just saying, I care, I love you, I love you. He's going to act on it. He's going to accomplish mercy, not just say he's merciful. That's the first reason why God chooses to actively save in this moment. The second reason is not only, not only to accomplish mercy um, 
But look at verse 72 again. And to remember his holy covenant. To remember his holy covenant. The oath that he swore to our father Abraham. He came because he promised that he would do this. He promised that he would ultimately save through Abraham. So God is not a liar. If God says he's going to do it, he's going to do it. And he does. So he, he does this to, give, to, give the, to, to keep his promise. So one, it's to be merciful. A second one is to, um, to keep his promise. Actually, there's four reasons, sorry. The, the third one is in verse 73 again. And I will translate this, to give us. So the oath that he swore to give to Abraham, um, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, he promised to give that to us. The privilege is that promise. He has given this promise to us. That's a, th- a third reason why God accomplished salvation, to not just give it to Abraham, but to the present generation, to Zechariah, to John the Baptist. And I would even apply it to us today. Now, does this apply to us today? Let's think about that for a second. We want to be careful to read our Bibles. When God says he's going to save Israel from their enemies, and Zechariah understands that as ethnic Israel, does that apply to you today here? Yes or no? Yes? Are you ethnic Israel? No, you're not. So we can't apply everything from the Bible, right? But does this apply? That's a good, valid question. Your answer is right. Yes, it does apply. But the question is, okay, clearly this is applying to ethnic Israel in Zechariah's time. How can you legitimately, Bethany Baptist Church, apply it to Christians today and all those who are in Christ? The answer, because he's, he's um, giving this promise against enemies, the answer is this is an old covenant promise to old covenant Israel. But God would supersede the old covenant to Israel with a new covenant to Israel. And that new covenant is in Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. God says, I'm taking out the old covenant to Israel. I'm giving a new covenant to Israel. I'm gonna write my law in their hearts. I'm gonna change their hearts. I'm gonna put my spirit in them. And who brought that new covenant to pass? Who brought that new covenant to pass? Jesus Christ, right? So when we take the communion today, we're gonna pass out this cup. We're gonna say this cup is, Jesus says this cup is the what? New covenant in my blood. And everyone who drinks that cup is saying publicly they are part of the new covenant community. They're part of the new Israelic covenant. So does God's salvation for his people against his covenant people, his, against his enemy, the enemies of his covenant people, is that fulfilled in us? Yes, if you're his covenant people. If you're part of the new Israelic covenant, if you believe in Jesus Christ, who brought in the new Israelic covenant, which superseded and fulfills the old covenant that has faded away, then this promise is for you as well. Okay, so this is not for everyone in this room. It's for Christians. Okay, God will deliver you from your enemies if you're a Christian. Now for them, those enemies were the other nations, Rome. For us, who are our enemies? It's not other nations necessarily. So our bigger ones, our biggest enemies are who? Satan and other demons. Okay, and then what else is, what's our biggest sin that we carry with us everywhere we go? Our biggest enemy? Ourselves. Did I say our sin? What's our biggest sin? I think I gave away the answer. Yeah, Um, what's our biggest sin we carry with us everywhere? Our sin is our greatest enemy. But but do we also have people who are our enemies? That oppose Jesus Christ and oppose the cause of Christ and the people of Christ? Yes. Now, we're different than Old Covenant. We're not taking swords to them. Instead, we take, we let them take a sword to us, Right? Christ laid down his life for for his enemies and Christians take on their enemies by dying for them, by loving them, by sacrificially caring for them while they attack. Does 
Because Jesus said, don't just, um, you heard it said, love, love those who love you and hate your enemies. Jesus said, what? Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. But will Jesus still, will God ultimately deliver us from our enemies? Those who oppose the gospel and who, those who oppose Christ and us? Yes. God will deliver us in the end from our own sin, from Satan and demons, and even from those who ultimately oppose God's people. God will save you. And what's, our, what's one of our other great enemies that's going to end, that's going to be swallowed up in the end? Death. Is death an enemy? Yes. Do you hate death? You should hate death. Death is a great evil in this world. Death is unnatural. You're saying, PJ, death is natural. Well, it's only natural because of sin. Sin wasn't supposed to, we're not made for sin. We're made to image God and enjoy God. Death is unnatural. Dying is unnatural. And it is the last enemy. And who can deliver us from death? Only God can. So here, God will give us the privilege, the promised salvation, the blessing that he swore. If you're not a Christian, you might currently be an enemy of God and his people. If you're not a Christian, this, that could sound hostile, right? I'm just telling you the truth. But I don't say that in hostility or anger. I say that to you just in love. You need to know where you are with God. Everyone who's apart from Jesus Christ, who doesn't trust in Jesus Christ, is opposed to Jesus Christ. Now, you might say, hold on, PJ, you're going too far. I'm not against the God of the Bible. I'm neutral. I'm indifferent. I'm not for Jesus or against Jesus. I'm just kind of there. I'm just doing my own thing. Jesus has nothing to do with me. I am just neutral. The God that you're talking about, the God of the Bible, I'm neutral to that God. Not for or against. I don't know if I believe in it. Maybe he exists, maybe he doesn't. But I'm neutral. So don't tell me that I'm opposed to God. I'm not opposed to him. I'm not for him either. I'm just there. Well, if that's where you're at, that would be like me saying, I'm not for my mom or against my mom. I'm just neutral. I don't love my mom. I don't hate my mom. She exists. Maybe she exists. Maybe she doesn't exist. It just doesn't have anything to do with me. I'm just me. Is that for my mom or against my mom? That's against my mom, right? Boy, I was in labor for 20 hours, right? You're like, do you know what I went through to get, you know? So if, if I was to be neutral towards my mom, that's offensive towards my mom because I came from her. I was born by her delivering me into this world. So if God didn't exist, then it might be okay to be neutral. But if God is your creator, if you are made in his image, if he indeed gives you the breath you breathe to say, I am neutral towards God, then you saying you're neutral to God is enmity towards God. It's opposing God. It's against God. It's offensive to God. There are no neutral parties to God. There are enemies and allies. There are those who are on the Lord's side and those who are against him. And if you're not a Christian here, let me comfort you by saying every Christian here was once an enemy of God. No one is born a Christian. We're all born enemies. And then the first thing we do as little kids is have enmity with the world because those toys are ours, right? That candy is ours. We're not sharing that with anybody. Everyone is an enemy. We're king. So we declare war on God from a young age. And so if you're not a Christian, let me invite you with a call to peace. Lay down your arms. We're all sinners against God. God is saying, I will give you forgiveness and life and peace if you will lay down your weapons, your indifference, 
You're ignoring me. You're putting me to the side. If you would turn from your sins and trust in my son, Jesus, who died for your sins and rose from the dead, turn and trust in him and you will be saved. That's God's offer to you because God, God made you. So if you're not a Christian, let me be very clear. God is calling you to turn from your sins and trust in Jesus Christ. Jesus lived the life we should have lived. He died on the cross for sinners and he rose from the dead. If you're not a Christian, we're thankful you're here. We are friends. We want to be your friend. We're just saying that you are still opposed to God, but we'll be your friend all the way. As long as you'll let us be your friend, we'll be your friend all the way till our dying day. Amen. But you need to know that you're opposed to God until you trust in Jesus Christ. And we're inviting you to do that today. So, here's, so those are three reasons. Here's an ultimate reason why God saves. Let's go to the ultimate reason why God saves. It's in verse 74. He has given us the privilege since we have been rescued. So he saves us by rescuing us from the hand of our enemies to serve him. And here's the ultimate reason, verse 74, the end of it, to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness in his presence all our days. That might be the main application, okay? What's the main reason why God saves? Why should we praise God for saving us? Because God saved us to serve him without what? Without fear, in holiness, in righteousness, in his presence, all our days, in fearlessness, in holiness, in righteousness, in his presence, every single day. What does it mean that God saves us to serve him in holiness? That means to set, be set apart from sin and set apart for his honor. What does it mean that we're set apart or we're saved to serve God in righteousness? That means that we're saved to serve God in always doing what is right, always upholding the glory and honor of God, the name of God. We always serve God for, in obedience to him. What does it mean to serve God every day before him? It means that we live and we serve with a sense that we are in God's presence. Do you know that God is here right now? Do you know God is paying attention to you right now and paying attention to us? And we are serving him by sitting here listening to his word? We're serving him by, by thinking about what his Bible says together with our church family? Do you realize that you're serving God right now in his presence? And everywhere you go, when you gather together, when you scatter from the church family into your work week and your school week and into your homes and neighborhoods, that you are serving in God's presence every single day. God is with you and you serve in his presence. So we serve in holiness, we serve in, in righteousness, we serve in his presence every day and we serve in fearlessness or we serve fearlessly. What might we fear when we serve God? We serve not fearing sin not fearing temptation, not fearing guilt, not fearing shame, not fearing judgment, not fearing enemies, not fearing threats, not fearing opposition, not fearing death. We serve God without fear because we fear God. And when you fear God, you don't need to fear anyone else. When you have an overwhelming fear of who God is, you're willing to trust and obey all that God says and you'll serve him without fear of anyone or anything else. We serve God fearlessly. Let me apply this to the Christians here. Where do you serve God fearfully rather than fearlessly? Anyone, here, anyone else here serve God fearfully sometimes besides me? I serve God with fear. And yet we're, here's the joy that Zechariah has. I want you to feel this joy. It is a joy to serve God without fear. But we serve God with fear. We're scared of getting found out. We're scared of being exposed. We're scared of, of harm and death. 
And so we hide and we isolate ourselves and we seek to protect ourselves with bubble wrap all around our lives so that when we get hurt, so that no harm and temptation can come to us. We serve the Lord with fear everywhere. And God's freeing us. He saved us to serve him without fear, fearlessly. Where are you fearfully serving God? Let me confess to you my two sins of fearfully serving God this week as I read this passage with uh, St. Jalon and St. Heber earlier this week. For me currently, where I'm fearing God, or not fearing God, that's the right thing to do, where I'm fearing wrongfully is I have been fearing pastoring certain difficult situations in our church that might fall apart. And I fear like it's all on me. And if this situation doesn't go through smoothly and it creates more pressure for me and others, then I have failed. And so I'm serving as a pastor, but I'm, I was, at least until Tuesday, until God rebuked me with this text, I was scared that it wasn't gonna pan out correctly and it's all on me. And God saved us to say, it's not all on you, PJ. Amen. Serve faithfully without fear. It might come through, it might not, but that's not on you. Serve without fear. That's one, one of my sins this week. Second sin, and I've asked you to hold me accountable to this. I've been writing for my dissertation um, on Revelation 2 and 3, and I have not been writing without fear. <laughs> I've been writing with fear that I'm not going to make it to February 1st deadline. It's highly, un it's, it's not impossible, but it's almost impossible to, to finish it by February 1st. And I've been writing with fear this week. And then the fact that I told the church to hold me accountable last Sunday night made me even more fearful because I'm like, I'm going to fail it. Everyone's going to know. And that is fearful. But as God rebuked me this week, he said, PJ, whether you finish or not, by then you have to kick it to one more semester or not, you serve me without fear. You write without fear. You do your best. You write every single day and you work hard and you try your best. And if you don't, there's no fear in telling the church, hey, pray for me. I'm going one more semester. There's no fear in that. Why am I scared? Why are you scared? What are you scared of? What are you scared of with your service to God? It might feel hard, but God calls you to freedom, not fear. To serve him without fear. To have the hard conversations without fear. To leave the results to him and just be faithful to love him and love others well. Serve the Lord, brothers and sisters, without fear. And be happy. We don't have to be fearful. You don't have to be in control. God is in control. Amen? Amen? So let's serve the Lord without fear. This causes us to praise God for his salvation. What a privilege to serve God in our trials and in the needs he's placed us in. So church family, let's praise God for our salvation. Let's remind each other of our future salvation. Christian, praise God for your salvation. One of the things I noticed with one of our members I pray with somewhat regularly is this brother tends to always start his prayer with thanking God for salvation in a different way. Thanking God for the cross in a different way. That's a good practice. To thank God regularly for your salvation. That's what Zechariah is doing here. That's what we should do. Children, children, look up here, children. Find your salvation in Jesus. Jesus wants to save you too. He wants you to trust in him and turn from your sins. And he will save you if you repent from your sins and trust in him. If you're not a Christian, I ask you, where do you find your victory? Where do you find your hope? How will you defeat the powers and enemies in your life that oppress you and knock you down? And let me talk about that last enemy just one more time. Let me mention it one more time. How are you gonna fight that final enemy towards the end of your life? 
You know that enemy that's coming, right? Death. How are you going to conquer the enemies in your life? God wants to save you and free you if you'll come to Jesus Christ. Okay, so that's how we respond to God's saving work, by praising him. And lastly, and this is really just application, more application, purpose yourselves to point to the light. So praise God for his saving work. And second point, purpose yourselves to point to the light. How do you live with purpose? Here are three ways of saying the one purpose of pointing to the light. Okay, I'll just mention them briefly. Look at verses 76 to 79. First way you live with purpose, look at John the Baptist's purpose, the son. By the way, we have newborns here. Let me encourage a BBC cultural practice here. I don't know if you've done this, but you need to do this. I haven't met Amaya yet, and I haven't met, though, um, what's that? Emmett. Emmett's here. Is Emmett here? That's Emmett right there. Okay, I'm going to meet Emmett in a second. Let this be part of our culture with newborns. Notice what Zechariah is doing. Who's he speaking to? The baby. Can the baby understand? Can John the Baptist understand what's being or what's being said here? No. Speak to your babies. Speak gospel truth to your babies. Church family, when you visit, speak the truth to the kids. Even if they can't understand a word you're saying. And pray over them. I only did this with my last two kids when City and Reed were born. But anytime anyone would come to visit us when our babies were newborns and come to visit the house, I would make them pray for my kids. You're coming here to visit my kids, you have to pray for their life right now. It's the first days of their life. I want you to say a prayer over their whole lives right now and think about it. And what a joy. I don't remember all those prayers. I remember some of them. But what are the prayers that are being answered in City and Reed's life because of the members who came to visit in those days and pray over my kids? Here's Zechariah speaking over the kid. And what does he say? What's the purpose for this child? To, to point to light. Here it is in verse 76. You child will be called a prophet of the most high for you will go before the Lord to do what? Here it is, to prepare his ways. That's one way of saying it. Preparing the way for Jesus. Second purpose in verse 77, to give his people knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of sin. Okay, here's two ways of talking about John's purpose. To prepare the way for Jesus. A second way of saying it is to give the knowledge of salvation through forgiveness of sins. Isn't that kind of the same thing? If you're preparing the way for Jesus, you need to tell people about Jesus. Give them the knowledge of who Jesus is the knowledge of their sins, the need to repent and turn from their sins, the fact that there's freedom for them if they would just give up their chains. You get the key to, un, to undo the handcuffs. You're born in handcuffs. And he's giving them knowledge. He's giving them the key so that they could unlock it by God's grace. Knowledge of salvation through forgiveness of sins in Jesus. That's two ways of pointing to the light. Knowledge of salvation. Didn't John do that? How did John prepare the way for Jesus? He preached repentance, didn't he? And what was he doing when people would believe John's message? What would he do to them? He would baptize them in water. That wasn't the Christian baptism. That's pre-Christian baptism. But that was a symbol preparing people for Jesus, preparing them by repentance and waiting for the Messiah. So that's how you do it. You need to prepare people. And then not only do you need to prepare people, you need to give them knowledge. John preached. And when he saw Jesus, what did he say? Behold the Lamb of God who what? Takes away the sins of the world. And the people who followed John said, Master, they're, they're leaving you and following him. He's having more followers than you. His church is getting bigger than yours. What did John say? He must increase and I must decrease. That's how you point to the light. It's not about you. It's not about your church. It's not about Bethany Baptist Church. It's about who? Jesus, right? It's about him. He must increase. How do you point to the light? By you decreasing and him increasing. That's how John did it. That's how he prepared the way. That's how he gave knowledge of salvation. He pointed to who Jesus is. And lastly, 
And now this isn't to John. This is now to all of us, including John. So we prepare the way, we give knowledge of salvation, and then we, re- we, re- we receive and reflect God's light. We receive and reflect God's light. Look at verse 78 and 79. Because of God's merciful compassion, the dawn from on high will visit us. To do what? So the dawn is light, right? The light will come to shine on those who, who live where? Who live in darkness and in the shadow of what? Death. Shadow of death. There's, there's the darkness. Sin and death. Those who live in the darkness, those who live in the shadow of death, the light has come to shine on us and to do what? What else does light do? The light shines on you in verse 79, and then lastly in verse 79, what else does the light do? It guides our feet into the way of peace. So it's guiding us to who? To Jesus. And it's guiding us to follow Jesus all the rest of our days and to be a light to others. So here's this last purpose. So it's to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation, and lastly, to receive and reflect light. I love the imagery here. God's light breaking into darkness. I'm, uh, every Christmas season, we watch Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. And so we just finished The Hobbit, the long movie series. And um, one of the lines, sorry if this is a spoiler for some of you, but it's an old movie, so shame on you if you haven't seen it already. <laughs> it's a really good movie. You should have seen it. All right, this is not going to spoil all of it, but there's a line where, um, where Gandalf, the wizard... He confronts the, the, the main enemy, Sauron, right? And Sauron says to, to the wizard, he says, this darkness is too strong for the light. And then in that moment, the darkness actually does overcome his light. There's a spoiler. It does overcome the light in that, in that moment, at least. Now, that's just not a true statement. Darkness never overcomes light. All darkness is is the absence of light. You can't... If we put, how much darkness can we put in this room to put out the light? You can't put out the light with darkness. The light, you have to turn off the light for darkness to come. But darkness never overcomes light. And so what, what, do we, what we have here is this image of God starting to break the light out into this dark world. And darkness can't stop it. It just has to receive it. And so God shines light on those who live where? In the shadow of? In the shadow of death. Why? Because they're sinners. That's why they're in darkness. Now let's think about this. Praise God and purpose your life for pointing to the light. Do we do that? Do we praise God and point to the light? Is that our lives? Have we been faithful in that and perfect in that and and consistent in it? We don't praise God for salvation. What do we do instead? We doubt God's salvation. We don't, we, we question God's salvation. We serve him like I confessed. We serve him with fear. We serve him with complaining. We serve him with drudgery. We serve him lazily and with sloth. We don't purpose ourselves to point to God's light. We often hide ourselves in the darkness, right? Not only do we not tell other people about light, we actually, we actually give our own lives to darkness, don't we? And then we hide in darkness and we don't want to tell other people about our sins. We don't want to confess our sins to each other. We want to stay in darkness. And God's trying to save us with the light. We hide in darkness. We hide or we, we fail to praise God. We fail to point to the light. But Jesus praised God, didn't he? Didn't Jesus trust God? Did Jesus ever serve God with fear? Never. He served God fearlessly in holiness and righteousness. And he purposely pointed to God's light. In fact, he was God's light, wasn't he? Jesus said, I am the light of the world. We deserve to be swallowed up in death. Jesus is the light. We don't deserve salvation. We deserve to be swallowed up in the shadow of death. But Jesus, the light of the world, was swallowed up by death. Darkness did overcome light. 
for a moment on the cross. Jesus hung in darkness, the light of the world, judged under the darkness of sin and death. Not for his sins, but for the sins of his people. The light of the world hanging in darkness saying, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? The darkness overcoming the light for a moment on the cross. Why? Why would Jesus die? He dies for our sins. Did he stay dead? No, on the third day, he rose from the dead on a Sunday. And so what do we do? We praise God that Jesus died for sinners. He died for our fearful service. He died for our lack of praise. He died for our purposelessness when he makes our purpose so clear. Isn't our purpose clear as Christians? It's not unclear. It's that we get distracted by other things. And Christ dies for our purposelessness, for our distractions. Praise God, Jesus died for our purposelessness when we've been pointing to darkness rather than light when we've been ignoring the light and silencing our mouths from those who, those who need to hear about God's light. God's light is meant to guide us into the way of peace. He does it by Christ. And, and John, how did John do it? Let, let me read to you John 1, 6 through 9. Just listen to these words from Scripture. John the Apostle is writing about John the Baptist now. He says this, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. The true light gives light to everyone. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world, speaking about Christmas, speaking about Jesus coming into the world. Are we the true light? Are we the the light of God, singular? No. Jesus is the true light. We point to the light, I know another passage says we are the light, but only by derivatively of being united to Christ. So how does God shine light in the darkness? How does God um, shine light into those who live in darkness? Verse 79, how does God guide his people into the way of peace? Through Jesus, through John the Baptist, and through the church. Through you. As you point people to Christ, God shines his light on your neighbors. God shines his light in your homes. He shines his light on each other because there's darkness even in my heart right now in some places. And when you talk to me and you rebuke me and you show God's light to me, you shine God's light even on my darkness. That's what we do. We shine God's light on each other in our words and in our lives. We share life and we share Jesus. That's the application. Point to the light with your words and with your life, with your gospelizing words and with your faith and repentant life. Why is this our purpose? One verse in 78. Why does God do this? Why does God save? Why does he give us this purpose? Because of our God's merciful what? Look at verse 78. Because of our God's, last last phrase here, because of our God's merciful compassion. Is God merciful? Does God care? Yes. Yes, God loves, God cares. God overflows with joy and delight. That's why he saves. Not because he needs us, but because he overflows with joy and excitement for us to include us in the Trinitarian celebration. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on his people. So brothers and sisters, praise God and purpose your life this Christmas. If you don't praise God, and if you don't purpose your life to point to the light, you will hypocritically praise God with weak praise, hypocritical praise, with your lips but not with your heart. And you will live for darkness and fake light. But if you praise God, for his salvation, his salvation, his saving work. If you purpose your life to point to the light, 
you will be ready for the end. You will live a life of meaning and hope for God's purpose now, and your life will praise and glorify God. Others will see that light and they'll be drawn in. God cares. God cares for sinners. God is merciful to sinners. I love this phrase from one of the Puritans. There is more mercy in God than sin in us. There's more mercy in God than sin in you and in our church. God is merciful. He's compassionate. So let us praise our God for his salvation and let us purpose, let us purpose our lives to point to his light. Let's pray. I'll give you a minute to pray on your own and then I'll close this in prayer. Father, shine your light on us and use us to shine our light, your light on each other and on this world. Lord Jesus, come soon. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus and help us to love and shine the light all our days. In Jesus' name, amen.